Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Bowshield wasn't satisfied with any of the bike lubes on the market, so they engineered their own. Their research proved that none of the Teflon, silicone, or synthetic formulas held up when exposed to dusty, dirty, and muddy conditions. For that reason, Bowshield T9 is designed to offer long-term lubrication and protection in any environment. Bowshield T9 waterproofs your bike chain, lubricates cables, and prevents rust with its effective all-in-one formula. The paraffin-based lube flushes out dirt and old lubricants, displaces moisture, and penetrates moving parts. Then it dries to a clean, continuous wax film that performs better than Teflon and lasts up to 200 miles. Bowshield T9 is designed to resist picking up dust, dirt, or mud, which makes it a good choice for all riding conditions. This month, Bowshield is giving away a free prize pack to a lucky listener. Go to singletracks.com slash Bowshield to enter and visit Bowshield.com to learn more or click the links in the show notes. Hey everybody, welcome to the Singletracks podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Dr. Chris Leott. So Dr. Leott is the founder of the eponymous bike and moto protection brand based in South Africa. The company's bike product line has expanded over the years to include helmets, pads, goggles, and even hydration packs, all designed with a focus on safety and protection. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thanks for the time, Jeff. So tell us how your company got its start. So it's um, around 17 years ago now where the, the, the concept of a, of a neck brace, which is the product that started the company, uh, first came to mind. I was at a, a sporting event, and in, in, in this instance it was an Enduro motorcycle event. I was post-call. I was uh, a resident in neurosurgery and, uh, and quite tired from a, from a very long week. So I wasn't competing, but uh, I went to watch an event with my four-year-old son, who'd ridden a motorcycle for the first time two weeks before, uh, a little Yamaha PV50. Mm-hmm. And uh, with great uh, delight, he'd taken off down down the road and and uh, fallen off into the nearest bush, um, and seemed absolutely enamoured by the by the, the the concept of a motorcycle. And yeah. um, and so we went together to watch an enduro event, and unfortunately. Sitting, having a chat to one of the paramedics who I knew from, uh, who delivered patients to us at the teaching hospital I worked at, uh, said to me, you know, he just got a call. Can I come with him to see a patient that is in a critical condition on top of the mountain? Mm. We went up in a four by four, Matthew, my son, with me. Um, and unfortunately, a rider by the name of Alan Selby, whom I knew, uh, had fallen over the handlebars in a downhill section at relatively low speed, and we suspected he had broken his neck. Um, unfortunately, I tried to resuscitate him, and we had all the right equipment, but uh, unfortunately, he couldn't be resuscitated, and I suspected he'd broken his neck. Mm-hmm. And later on, I received information which confirmed the fact that he'd broken his neck from an autopsy. Uh, had to tell his his wife and family at the time of the event, and it, it was obviously very traumatic. Mm. And as at that point in time, I said to my son, "Well, you're not going to ride a motorcycle until I uh, find a neck protection device in the market that works." And 
uh, I thought it would be a simple exercise of, of just looking hard enough to find one. Of course, there wasn't one. And it was many years of work then that took me to the point where I'd researched the major injury vectors and the mechanisms of causation of neck injuries in uh, off-road motorcycling, which uh, applies in many ways to the bicycle sports as well, mm-hmm. and understood what ne- needed to be done to limit neck injuries. So the company started on the back of the neck brace, and the way the neck brace works is what we call an alternative load path technology. So if you have a platform underneath your helmet that can be loaded, if you fall off a bicycle or a motorcycle and land in your, your head, say going over the front of your handlebars, your without an, a neck brace in place, the force is transferred from the ground to your helmet, to your skull, to your skull base, to your neck, and to the rest of your torso. And it's actually loaded in the upside-down fashion. So it's the weight of your torso and the energy of your torso that's loading uh, the neck. Mm-hmm. If you have a neck brace in, in position, the helmet rotates at some point and touches the neck brace. And some of the force, not all of the force, let's say 20%, some of the force goes via the brace to the rest of the body and bypasses the neck. Hmm. And if you see the threshold for neck injuries as a high jump, you just never get to the point where the jumper can get over the jump. In other words, if the threshold, for example, of uh, of 5,000 newtons is required or 500 kilograms of loading to produce a neck injury with the neck brace on, the typical accident scenario doesn't produce enough force to produce an injury. Hmm. So in a very convoluted way, we created an alternative load path to remove some of the energy from the neck and thereby reduce the incidence of neck injury. And that thesis has really been carried across to many of other products that we've uh, developed thereafter hmm. is, is energy mitigation and alternative load paths. Yeah. Well, that's surprising that there wasn't anything on the market at the time. And I mean, I guess so football here in the U.S. comes to mind and uh, football players obviously don't wear neck braces, but I guess it's the pads like shoulder pads uh, interfacing with a helmet that, that kind of produces the same effect. I'm not sure it's the same effect, and of, all, of course, the uh, the mechanism of injury in football is not always the same as motorcycling. So, uh, a lot of the injuries in football are spear tackling when uh, a player is running head down directly into another player, mm-hmm. and the other mitigation stru- strategies that can be employed there, um, because it's, in in essence, it's almost a pure axial loading injury. So, in other words. You know, you, you fall off a motorcycle or a bicycle, you tend to hit your head and then your head either flexes or extends. Uh, whereas in American football, uh, uh, you are running uh, sort of in a spear fashion, head down, straight into the other player. <laughs> right. The- theoretically, um, another a number of other uh, advantages to wearing a neck brace that may apply to, to football. And that, that is that we believe that brain injury is less likely to occur uh, with a neck brace in place uh, than without one. At first thought, doesn't really make sense. Uh, but if you think about how head uh, is impacted in an accident, say you fall off a, a motorcycle and land in your head. Mm-hmm. Uh, initially, your your head comes to rest on the ground, and then your head accelerates relative to your torso. So if you watch high-speed video footage of uh, motorcycling events, and, and the one that we studied quite a lot is James Marshall, the extent to which his head moved backwards after the, the initial impact is, is extreme. So here you have 
a potentially brain-injured head that now is starting to accelerate again. And by catching the head earlier in that acceleration path by, with a neck brace, you actually can reduce the second impact sequence on the head. Uh, and we believe that over time we'll be able to show clinically that there's a reduction in traumatic brain injury. Mm. Of course, helmets are the right thing to use um, in terms of the primary insult. But secondarily, uh, uh, we believe that uh, the neck brace is is good for the brain. Yeah, interesting. Well, how have uh, neck braces for biking specifically changed over time? You know, today everybody pretty much calls a neck brace a liet. Um, so obviously, you know, your company was an early mover in the space, but have things changed much over the last several years? I do think that the, the neck brace has evolved. I mean, if you look at the, uh, the earliest models, uh, they were quite heavy, cumbersome, without much adjustability and not uh, necessarily as comfortable as they are today. Mm-hmm. In terms of how they work, uh, being an alternative load path, in, in specifically in, in terms of the Liat, the protective uh, features of the brace are the same. It just is more ergonomically styled, more comfortable, and can be set up uh, more specifically for a rider. When we started with uh, with mountain bike, we noticed that the mountain bike riders required a slightly different profile uh, on the top rear platform to those of, uh, uh, in terms of motor, uh, motorcycling or uh, motocross riders were, mm. particularly when they were going downhill and having to to uh, to look up, they needed a slightly different shape. Yeah, uh, and so that has now been borne out in the in the new modern style neck braces that, you know, they're now sort of ergonomically styled for. For downhill, which is you know the most aggressive type of mountain biking, and and where you're most likely to see a neck brace being used. Hmm. Well, the Enduro World Series recently shared a study of mountain bike injuries, and I imagine there there are other sources of this data on injuries as well. What are the most common types of injuries associated with mountain biking? You know, the neck injury clearly is is the most traumatic of the injuries, but are, are neck injuries that common? What is sort of the common way that people are injured? So, you know, data collection and, and good quality data uh, where you're comparing the same data fields uh, and sources is is something that we're always asking for, we strive to to get, and we have a knowledge library within LIAT where anybody who's had a significant accident with or without an injury, uh, with a neck brace in place, we compare the data. Um, so the EWS uh, injury statistics or data is fantastic, but I think you know in time to come, hopefully we get better data. And by the nature of the game, it's best that this data is actually derived by by people outside of uh, a company manufacturing uh, the safety apparel, right. uh, because it gives you good, honest data that uh, everybody can uh, can apply across uh, and, and for evaluation of num- numerous um, safety techniques, whether they're track design or safety apparel uh, design. In terms of the most common injuries, they normally are limb injuries, so upper limb and shoulder, hand. Uh, of, of the most common injuries, collarbones, uh, fractured hands, uh, upper limb injuries, uh, low limb injuries, and torso injuries. So because the numbers that are collected in these data sets of often quite small events, you see this statistically unreliable data 
in terms of the the less uh, commonly occurring injuries, whether they're brain or neck injuries. So if the data set is is um, is large enough, we can gain some some really good insights. There was uh, there was a Great Lakes um, EMS action sport uh, data for almost ten years in motocross uh, in in the US. Mm almost 10 years and almost 10,000 riders. And, and there the, the numbers were large enough to see that neck injury reduction was in the in the magnitude of about 89% less likely to injure your neck if you had a neck brace on. Wow. Which obviously is a, is a really significant number. But I don't believe in mountain biking we have the right data to actually draw those conclusions. Having said that, the mechanism of injury is the same. So I think it's it's fairly safe to draw these parallels if uh, the other injury types are also occurring. In other words, the magnitudes of the falls are similar in terms of producing brain injuries, upper limb injuries, torso injuries, to extrapolate the numbers f- for neck injuries and, and thereby apply the same prevention numbers that we see in, in, uh, in motorcycling to bicycle riding but at the, at this stage unfortunately the data sets aren't, aren't large enough hmm. interesting well you know obviously uh, your company started out designing neck braces um, but today you do a lot of other protective equipment as well including helmets uh, how has helmet design changed over the past few years and and how does it work in terms of optimizing a helmet to prevent those neck injuries as well so I think, you know, helmets are a relatively hot topic at the moment in terms of new standards that have been uh, developed. So for a long time, standards remained very stagnant, and manufacturers used to design helmets to meet or exceed certain standards. Most of those standards were looking at what we call linear deceleration, so without a rotational component. Um, we now understand that you need far less rotational energy to produce a devastating brain injury uh, than linear accident. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a move coming in terms of you know ECE standards um, in motorcycling, the, FI, the new FIM proposed standard, uh, where they're looking specifically at a rotational components and that helmets actually have to mitigate against rotational acceleration. So that's probably the single biggest protective change that is going to happen to the industry and is happening at the moment, is that standards now need to look at rotation. Hmm. Obviously, you know, styling is something that happens and changes over time, and it's it's what what riders you know the look that riders like. But in terms of the actual protection, I think the numbers are going to get bigger, and the rotational acceleration mitigation is going to be a much more significant component. Yeah. Well, yeah. And we're seeing new materials as well. A lot of carbon fiber being used in helmets is a lot of riders when they're wearing a helmet, you know, they'll say a heavier helmet is, is uncomfortable, right? They get some neck pain from that. Is that a factor at all? I mean, obviously you're the expert on neck injuries and things is, is a heavier helmet. Is it possible that that's harming people by wearing a heavy helmet and and should we be moving more toward lighter weight helmets well i think i think light is better for a, on a number of uh, uh, reasons obviously from a performance perspective light is better 
from a fatigue perspective, lighter is better. From neck injury perspective, um, there were some early studies that showed that heavier helmets, over one and a half kilograms, can statistically increase the significance of neck injuries. Hmm. Now, if you're looking at a bicycle helmet, you're unlikely to get to that number. Okay. But, you know, the, the when we start looking at rotational acceleration, and those numbers were quoted in terms of uh, linear deceleration, to the best of my knowledge. But if you start looking at rotational acceleration, which is being studied now, the heavier the head and helmet complex is, mm-hmm. the, the more devastating it can be potentially for rotation. Hmm. So I think on, on, on numerous um, counts, the lighter the helmet, the better. Having said that, of course, that's provided that the, um, that the protective capacity of the helmet remains the same. And I think that's, you know, the advent of new materials has allowed for, you know, there's some quite clever ways of producing the, the previous standard EPS layer. There are anti-rotation mechanisms that are pretty lightweight in terms of the inner liner, the MIP system, our, our turbine system, obviously the outer shell uh, and the method of construction, you know, the amount of glue and resin uh, can that, that can be reduced to a minimum in terms of construction techniques where you still have the same the same uh, protective capacity are, are all advances that in terms of protection and performance mm-hmm. we're seeing in the industry today. That's, it's, it's quite an exciting uh, place at the moment. Yeah, well, you know, the rotational technology that I guess a lot of consumers are familiar with is MIPS. And you mentioned Liat's solution, which is uh, called 360 Turbine. I believe. Uh, how is that sort of different or similar to MIPS? And could you explain to us a little bit about how it works and sort of what the theory is behind that? So what we set out to do with the turbine is to produce our, our own anti-rotation technology. And what we generally do when we're looking at at a problem, and I mean, obviously, rotation is a problem within head injuries, is to not look at what the rest of the industry is doing, but to rather make up our own mind as to how we would approach this. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and we've used this way of thinking uh, in, in designing a lot of our product, products, uh, you know, if it's from a knee brace to a goggle to a helmet, um, it, it's just to look at what we believe is the right solution to the problem. So we developed a turbine which um, under load is distorted. It goes between the head and the the EPS, the EPS liner nestled within the comfort liner, and it can distort as the head is rotated to mitigate against uh, rotational acceleration of the head relative to the helmet. But what we, what we found is with using specific design of, and specific materials is that we could actually reduce the low-speed impacts, which are probably more commonplace, less de- devastating, but more commonplace. So you're, le- you're more likely to bump your head not as hard as to uh, end up with a traumatic brain injury, but more often uh, in the pursuit of your sport. Mm-hmm. So what we looked at is relatively low energy mitigation in terms of the turbine as well as rotation. The reason we did that is because in order to pass helmet standards, the helmet actually has to be quite robust and rigid. Mm-hmm. So helmets, generally speaking, work quite well for a fairly narrow range of impact velocities. And by creating the turbine, what we did is essentially just increase that range of uh, impact velocities. Hmm. 
Yeah. Well, we've also been hearing too about these brain injuries that even vibration, like a lot of vibration over time uh, can lead to problems for people. Um, is there any way to mitigate that? I mean, other than just, you know, having, having a different riding style, perhaps, you know, making sure suspension is tuned. I mean, mountain bikers, especially if you're riding a lot of rough terrain and you're riding it at speed, it seems like over time, that vibration is going to add up and, and could lead to problems. Is that something you've looked at or considered? I think one of the one, one of the best ways to mitigate against that problem is to wear a gum guard. Hmm. And it has a number of, of uh, benefits. So it, it is, it's, it's been studied for some time now that if you can stabilize the, the, the jaw joint, the, what we call the temporomandibular joint, hmm. if you can stabilize that, your and, and for example, if you struck on the chin by uh, in in a boxing match, for example, right. If right. you're wearing a gum guard, that's that uh, strike is less devastating. And less force is transferred into the brain if you're wearing a gum guard. Hmm. In the same instance, if you are clenching your jaw on on onto a soft medium and stabilizing your temporomandibular joint, there seems to be some reduction in transfer of energy to the brain, but also you get a proprioceptive benefit so your balance actually improves um so that's a study i'm not uh, aware that it's been studied in um in rocky downhill in particular but that's a mitigation strategy that potentially could bear fruit and uh, may actually be beneficial to some riders and be, be interesting to know um once they've got used to wearing a gum guard how they feel about um their balance and proprioception yeah that's fascinating yeah it's definitely not something we've seen in mountain biking but um you know like all competitive sports i'm sure any kind of edge that people can get you know i mean and it sounds like that's both safety and uh potentially yeah there's a, a benefit for performance as well are you seeing more mountain bikers choosing full-face helmets than they used to? Uh, it seems like these days people are being more uh, safety conscious and, and are seeing some of these studies and things that are out there. So has that translated into sort of a shift in sales for Liat? I must be honest, um, I'm, I'm not necessarily the right person to, uh, to ask, ask, answer that question in terms of sales. However, we we have seen you know move to def detachable chin guard uh, helmets, mm -hmm. uh, where a rider you cycling up a hill for example wants the freedom in airflow, but once going downhill wants more protection. But I think as you've said across the the board, is people are becoming more protection orientated, mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, you know you want to participate in your sport for as long as possible. If you have an injury, you're out of your sport. Right. And therefore, it makes sense to sponsors and riders uh, to keep their, their athletes as safe as possible for as long as possible. Mm. You know, when it comes to the weekend warrior, um, I have an idea that uh, that, that uh, spouses may play a role as well or mothers and <laughs> children that right. yeah, go ride, but, you know, wear this, please. So I think people are becoming more safety conscious. And, um, you know, the development of uh, removable chin guards for helmets, I think, illustrates that uh, people want, uh, you know, the airflow up a hill and they want the protection down a hill. Yeah. And you, you know, even your own sort of experience in starting the company, um, you know, as a parent watching a child get into a sport and saying, yeah, I'd be a little more comfortable if, if there were more safety options out there. And yeah, it feels like we're definitely seeing that, you know, as mountain biking becomes 
more of a, a lifelong sport for a lot of people. What is something that mountain bikers might not know about helmets, but maybe that they should in terms of what type of helmet they should purchase or uh, when they should wear them or how they should wear them? Is, is there anything out there that would be helpful for mountain bikers to know? I think you know it's 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 all about doing your your research when you get into sport. I mean, if you're going to go uh, and ride sand versus rock and on a regular basis, you're probably going to choose a different tire. You're probably going to choose different suspension setup. You're going to probably run different tire pressures. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think there you've got to you've got to buy the protection that is uh, relative uh, to to the sports in which you uh, are, are, are riding. So um, I, th- I think choosing the right product for the right application is important. But just on um, on a side note, I mean, things like replacing helmets, if you've had a significant impact, if there's a mark on the helmet, and most certainly if there's any damage to the inside of a helmet or the EPS layer, mm-hmm. sometimes, of course, it's very difficult to see that. You may only see a, a crease or a faint discoloration on the outside. If a helmet has had an impact, just get rid of it and, and, and buy another helmet. Uh, that helmet is is probably not going to function the same uh, in a second uh, instant. I have seen uh, a number of uh, articles written on the, on the, how many times helmets come loose during motorcycle accidents. Hmm. I haven't seen that sort of data for for bicycle accidents. But if you just have a look at uh, uh, when you when you're next riding with with uh, with a bunch of people on the mountain, how, how many people's helmet chin straps are actually done up correctly? Right. Where you can just uh, slip two fingers underneath your jaw side by side, not one on top of the other. Uh, if you see somebody's chin uh, strap dangling underneath, the, the chance that the helmet actually stays on during the whole impact sequence is probably going to be diminished. Mm. Uh, you know, a helmet's a fantastic thing, but if it isn't on your head, it's going to do nothing to protect you. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's not enough to just have it on, but you have to have it on correctly because like you said, it could shift, uh, if it's not on there properly. Right. Yeah. And, and I'll add too. you know, my kids are terrible about, uh, just dropping their helmet on the pavement, you know, after a ride or things like that. And so even if a helmet hasn't been involved in a crash, you really have to, you have to be careful with them. You can't just throw them around, you know, that's, they're designed to, to crack. <laughs> and so, yeah, keeping, keeping track of that. We've seen people load their kit bags, overload their kit bags, um, and actually break a helmet inside a kit bag. Oh, wow. Um, and so that just shows, you, you know, a helmet is there for an impact, but it's not there for multiple impacts. <laughs> right. So you mentioned earlier on uh, about the incidence of certain types of injuries that a lot of upper limb uh, injuries were fairly common. So let's talk a little bit about body protection. Can you tell us the difference between sort of what's known as hard body protection and what's known as more of a soft shell body protection? So, you know, a number of years ago, people saw hard shell protection as proper protection and soft shell is something that was less than a hard shell. Mm. And of course, what we now understand is that uh, even uh, with abrasion resistance, but most certainly with impact uh, attenuation, soft shell can be at least as good as, and sometimes a combination product is is uh, is the best. Mm. So 
you know, you've you've got to uh, really look at uh, at the the force in in your chosen sport mm-hmm. and uh, how how likely you are to have an injury. So, if you look at um, you know very thin hard shell protectors, um, they may protect against abrasion. Uh, but if you fall on a on a really hard a rock, for example, or that hard shell protector also with with say two or three straps behind it on an elbow can rotate out of the way. It may not be the best form of protection. The fact that uh, that the soft shell protection has now really advanced in terms of the materials being used, mm-hmm. as well as how they apply to the body. You know, we, we don't just look at two or three straps now. We look at a, a garment that is ergonomic, that fits your body properly. Um, and if the right size is chosen, even in a proper impact, it stays in the right place. It doesn't rotate out of the way. So I think that's really important. The soft shell protectors, like the, the type that Liet uses, people who do their research will know this. But those who, who are thinking about getting a soft shell protector – so what what Liet uses is uh, is materials that are called non-Newtonian. So mm-hmm. they don't obey Newton's laws of physics. The harder you hit them, the harder they become. Mm-hmm. So they actually dampen the forces relative to how big the force is. When they're worn uh, close to the body, they really are soft uh, and very very comfortable to use. Mm-hmm. But if they're hit at a, a significant uh, impact velocity, they actually stiffen up instantly and become very uh, good protectors. Uh, if you just look at some of Liet's gloves that have got uh, non-Newtonian material on the knuckles, that you can actually hit a wall uh, with your fist without breaking your knuckles. On, on a regular glove or where you had thin um, previous hard shell coating, you couldn't do the same. Hmm. It's just a good way of understanding how effective – this form of new soft shell protection actually is. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's almost as if the the new soft shell with these non-Newtonian materials, I mean, it effectively is two in one, right? I mean, it's it's soft, which is what consumers associate with, you know, comfort and flexibility. Um, but then in the event of a crash, it, it becomes that sort of hard shell protection that you need. Correct. And, and what is the idea behind that? Is it spreading that force over a wider area so that you're not getting like, you know, sort of a a pinpoint impact on say a bone or another part of the body. Is that effectively what it's doing? Well, it, it takes, so if you look at a hard shell protector, it can't deform very much. So you, you either slide over the ground or you you displace that energy, but you're not really absorbing the energy. Mm. Whereas these non-Newtonian materials, the harder you uh, you impact them, the harder they become. So the, the amount of force it requires to distort that protector is is essentially the amount of force that's removed from from uh, from the equation. Hmm. Where does the force go, though? It goes it goes into changing the shape of the protector. So a hard protector you can't change its shape. Whereas a, a deformable protector you are changing its shape, and by displacing. Um, if, if it's like taking Play-Doh, you know, if, uh, if you push your hand hard into the Play-Doh, uh, you know, relatively fast, that Play-Doh disperses um, and you, you, you can't impact the hard surface underneath. And that displacement of the Play-Doh, or, the, or, uh, or, or in this case, uh, a non-Newtonian material, is where the energy is, is going. It's going into the displacement. Hmm. Interesting. 
Well, which for you is a bigger challenge? Is it designing gear that provides this effective crash protection or is it designing protective gear that is comfortable and that people will actually wear and, and feel like they can still perform sort of at the same level? So, you know, one can, one can, be, one can uh, wrap a rider up in cotton wool and uh, he, he will appear and probably be very nicely protected if you wrap him in in enough uh, cotton wool, um, but he's not going to be able to participate in his sport and become completely and utterly impractical. So I think that's really the uh, the trick here is, is producing a, a, a very protective piece of equipment um, is almost the easy part. The, the more difficult part is to how to ergonomically style it to fit the rider well. And, uh, you know, we've, we've moved to 3D design. So even our garments now are not designed on a normal 2D pattern uh, as garments are, are traditionally made, but actually formed in, in using 3D modeling to ensure that they fit the rider properly. And of course, there's the other element is that, um, and, and something that I'm very proud of what Liet's been able to do recently, and, and that is make a move from being a very tech kind of protective uh, company to one that is cool. People are actually sourcing, you know, looking for Liet in terms of the coolness of the brand and the coolness of the apparel. Because unless you want to ride it, it's not uh, much good in terms of protection. Yeah. Well, I'm interested to know how or if at all the sport of enduro mountain biking has affected the design of this protective equipment. You know, in downhill, people tend to associate sort of the the biggest potential for injury. And so, you know, helmets and pads and things like that are designed uh, to take those bigger hits. Um, but with enduro... You know, the gear also has to be lightweight um, and yet at the same time sort of protect against similar impacts. Is is that something that you've seen as Enduro has sort of grown over the years? Have the athletes asked for different products or, or more specific things? Absolutely. And I, I think as you as you correctly saying, Jeff, I mean, there's there's no doubt that Enduro is growing. And uh, there's also no doubt that some of the Enduro courses are quite gnarly. I mean, you know, you, you need protection. Mm-hmm. But being able to be free and 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 cycle up uphill and as well as downhill, you know, it, it is it is a different level of uh, of protection, and pe- people are becoming quite discerning now. And I think that's why I'm, I'm uh, I think Liet is uh, is constantly trying to produce what the what the rider is is asking for, and we never produce uh, protective equipment without collaborating with a very wide range of riders in different disciplines and in different regions. I mean, we've also found that we have a a number of high-profile riders that we test with in certain regions, uh, and then we send one out to a different region and get a completely different feedback. So Hmm. developed a system now where uh, we we get really good feedback from a number of riders and and use that to drive the innovation um, and and ensure that we're giving riders the the protection that they are really asking for. Yeah, and uh, and uh, you know, hopefully, you'll see more more specific, nuanced products for these different disciplines. You know, the the the, the thing about uh, Liet as a company, um, like where we started from, which was trying to mitigate neck injuries in a very specific niche market, which was off road motorcycling. Um, we we the same applied to to mountain biking um, where we we started off protect trying to protect with full face helmets and neck braces the downhill rider, 
And we see the company really as a mountain, whereas we start at the top and we're now being able to move down that mountain to give a broader base of more broader disciplines and more more consumer product. We, we will always yeah. uh, remain a refined sort of uh, upper market, you know, mid to upper market product in terms of price point because of the protection and the, and the innovation materials that we put into these products. But we, we most certainly as a company are moving down the mountain in terms of our offerings. Yeah. Well, I think almost all mountain bikers tend to agree that a helmet in terms of protection is a must for riding. But beyond that, uh, it seems like everyone has sort of a different level of protection that they want. So some people are going to wear knee pads. Some people might wear a neck brace. Why do you think people have sort of these different ideas? I mean, is it is it only about the type of riding that they're doing or is there maybe a psychological component to it or, or what what do you think uh, people are, are basing their decisions on? I think there's I think that's a multifactorial um, answer. I mean, I think, you know, if you're if your mates are riding, uh, you know, you, you're more likely to ride in the same equipment that they are so that you, you sort of fit into that click. Mm-hmm. If if you're riding a certain discipline, you're more likely to adopt, uh, you know, do, once again downhill versus cross country. You know, you you're more likely to have more protection on if you if you're racing downhill, for example. Mm-hmm. I think also age. You know, we've seen a big uh, shift to to e mountain bikes, and certainly in South Africa, it really has become very popular, and. Um, the less experienced rider and sometimes the older rider are now adopting e-bikes, which is, of course, fantastic to get out and into the mountains. Uh, but with less cycling time under their belts necessarily, uh, heavier bicycles um, and not as fit and strong as they may have been before, um, the amount of injuries actually goes up. So you know, I think it also, um, in that instance, we've seen uh, this whole category of e-mountain biking really demanding a different level of, of protection. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I have, I have my own theory that every rider is a little bit different in terms of their like common injury mode. So for me, like I tend to, to bang my shins a lot, you know, either on the pedal or the bike, or even in the event of a fall, it seems like I'm always hitting my shin. Whereas other people, maybe it's their hand, you know, they've had broken hands over the years, or, or maybe it's a collarbone. Is that something you've seen that it sort of varies from rider to rider, or is it more based on sort of the terrain and the sort of the external factors. I I, I don't have the data on 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 uh, to answer that question, except uh, you know I can I can tell you my own experience. And um and, until I went back to cleats again, uh, I used to do my shins in all the time. Hmm. And uh, if I fall, uh, there's a hundred percent chance of me landing on my elbow. <laughs> yeah. So you know the marked, most marked part of my body is on my elbows. <laughs> so. <laughs> So that's a good place to put protection is elbow guards as, and um, very, very rarely fall on my knees. So, yes, I mean, I guess you, you, you're right, is that uh, people have fall, falling modes. Hmm. Yeah. Well, so for you then, when you go out for a ride, you know, either a bike ride or, or a motorcycle ride, what amount of protection are you wearing? Are, do you have the whole kit where you've got sort of everything protected or uh, do you do you sort of a, a hybrid approach? So it depends on what I'm riding. So if, if I ride a, ride a motorcycle, I'm, I'm kitted up from head to foot. 
you know, they're, they're, they're these, um, you know, if, you, if you're doing long distance mountain gravel road rides, uh, there's the chance you're going to meet a car and there's, uh, in, in terms of getting to that gravel road, you, you definitely going to uh, be, be passing cars. So I always on a motorcycle keep myself up from head to toe. I was lucky enough to do the Absa Cape Epic last year and I'm, I'm training to do it again uh, next year. It's uh, an, an eight-day mountain bike race, um, seven, 800-kilometer uh, uh, mountain bike race with significant climbing. Um, every day, and and of course there we, we we you've got to ride with as little as possible. Um, you know I can't even wear a hydration pack. It's it's a bottle on the bicycle, um, a helmet, right. and, and really good gloves. So you know crash pants uh, are great, uh, but you simply can't ride in uh, in elbow guards and knee guards over those distances. Um, so you know that's my sport, and so I I I choose the best of Liet's kit for for that application. But if I'm going to ride, uh, I'm, I'm lucky close to uh, where I live in Stellenbosch. We've got some really fantastic riding. We've got some nice short little downhills um, paths, uh, tracks. And uh, so there I'll wear elbow guards and knee guards and, you know, keep myself up from head to toe. Uh, but if I'm going for a, you know, in, a long endurance ride, then um, then then the, the equipment is, is minimal. Yeah. Well, the Liat brand makes protective gloves with built-in armor and even hydration packs that are designed to offer some amount of protection. So what's next for the brand? Um, well, what you've seen, uh, will have seen is that we've, we've become a head-to-toe brand. And uh, that is something we've been thinking about for a very long time and, and been executing on for the last few years. And within the last uh, six months, both motorcycle-wise and uh, bicycle-wise, now with with our advent of our boots and uh, and shoes and uh, and goggles, uh, we're we're in our head-to-toe brand. Mm-hmm. So we'll we'll continue to develop our brand in that in that uh, way. Um, as I as I mentioned earlier, we started off being a very much pinnacle of the mountain type brand where we looked at the the extreme the extreme end of the sports and we we now want to cater for more riders uh, and so i see i think you'll see more um in the vertical commerce consumer products come from liet or products where we cater for a wider range of riders hmm. so outside of protecting ourselves uh sort of on our bodies do you think there are opportunities to make bikes themselves safer for riders it's it's not something that I've looked at uh, specifically. I've uh, in, in a previous life, um, I, I used to uh, analyze the injury statistics for motorsports South Africa, where we looked at track design and how by changing track design ever so slightly, you could r- radically reduce the number of uh, injuries. So uh, you have a jump and then a straight, rather than a straight and then a jump, mm-hmm. um, and that made particularly in the youth riders a big difference to injuries. So Obviously, track design, um, depending on your discipline. But in terms of bicycles, um, you know, bicycles can hurt you, um, and 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 specific parts of bicycles hurt you. You know, the the tips of handlebars and uh, and pedals, for example. So I'm sure we'll see development in that uh, in that regard. But to be honest, it's not something that uh, I've thought a lot about. Yeah. Interesting. Well, right. You bring up an interesting point about the tracks as well. And I think that is something that 
is certainly being looked at, I think, along with that uh, Enduro World Series study as well, that they looked at some of the tracks and, and thinking about ways uh, to design those to make them safer. Well, Dr. Liet, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and to fill us in on mountain bike protection. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks for inviting me, uh, Jeff. It, it's It's been great. And uh, uh, I hope I've, I've given you some useful information and you know, if as always, if there's any other thing uh, questions you you want to um, address in the future, please uh, feel free to to ask. Great, thank you. Well, you can get more information about the Liet brand and their products at liet.com. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week.